Good morning, everyone. Well, today we begin our celebration of Passion Week. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, as recorded in Matthew 21 and Mark 11, commonly called the triumphal entry, was the first significant event of that week. Uh, It is a, a week of celebration, a week of enormous significance in the Christian life. When Jesus came into Jerusalem, it is called the triumphant entry for a reason. It was a, a, a day, a, a day marked with palm branches and cries of Hosanna, which is why, if you're not familiar with Christian traditions, you typically have kids in a church service like ours waving palm branches. If you didn't know what that was about, it's because in Jesus' triumphal entry, he was greeted by all these palm branches laying down in the path as the king rode in, and cries of Hosanna, save now, which is why historically, this Sunday is known as Palm Sunday. Sunday. You know, do you realize that in the Gospel of John, a full one-third of the Gospels, seven chapters, chapters 13 to 20, are taken up with entirely by the events of this week alone? So, in other words, two-thirds of the entire Gospel of John records about three years of the life and ministry of Jesus, and one-third of the entire Gospel is dedicated to this week and this week alone. That fact ought to tell us something that this, very, this is a very significant week in the life of Jesus' ministry. Now, last year we looked at some of the events in that week, uh, kind of at that 10,000-foot view. This year, this morning, we're going to do something a little bit different. We are going to go from the 10,000 view and zoom in right on one event that took place in that week, and not just one event. We're actually just going to look at one conversation of one event that took place then 2,000 years ago. And even though this was a conversation 2,000 years ago, we're going to see really quickly that it has a lot of relevance to our lives today. Well, with that, let's ask God to to bless the teaching of His Word, and we're going to jump into John 14. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the way that our hearts have been prepared in singing these songs. Father, thank You that we celebrate Passion Week, and and that word can mean so many things. It, It means just enthusiasm. It means to have an energy, but really what it means is suffering. And Lord, it has both connotations, I think that it is because of the suffering of Christ that our lives can be filled with enthusiasm because we know what life is about. And Father, thank You that every year we remind ourselves again of the significance of this week. And Lord, would You bless the teaching of Your Word as we zero in on this amazing conversation between the Lord and His followers and what significance it has for our lives. Bless us towards these ends. We'll thank You in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, there's, there's a lot of words that have been used to describe um, this Passion Week, words like triumph, excitement, amazement, betrayal, even shock. But anxiety, anxiety may not be a word that immediately comes to mind, but the experience certainly is there, if not the word. Think of the very first words of this amazing chapter that we're so familiar with that Jesus says to his followers, let not your hearts be troubled. Well, what is anxiety if not a troubled heart? What is anxiety if not that fear that grips you when you're facing unknowns? 
What is anxiety if not the realization that that you are facing a future that you are ill-equipped to face? What is anxiety if not the knowledge that everything that you had hoped for is quickly slipping through your fingers? Yet the word does not appear, at least not in the English text, but the experience can hardly be missed if you're paying attention to what's going on. And I love the fact that in the midst of one of the most significant weeks in human history, the Gospels record a brief conversation between the Lord and His followers to talk about the anxiety and the trouble that has filled their hearts. Not only does that say something about the pastoral heart of God, it says something about the human experience of anxiety, doesn't it? You know, the the National Institute of Mental Health uh, says that in America, the U.S. population that suffers from some kind of anxiety distress is 18%. 18%! That's almost two out of every 10 people in our culture suffers from a gripping anxiety. In 2010, doctors prescribed over 42 million times a prescription of Xanax and anti-anxiety medicine. Anxiety is a huge issue. It goes by many different words, but it's all over the place certainly in our culture, but even here in John chapter 14, as Jesus notices in his followers, anxieties grip upon them. So the question we have to ask is, well, how did did the disciples get here? I mean, the triumphal entry was just a few days ago in their timeline. It was just about four days earlier, and these very disciples, along with the entire city of Jerusalem, was caught up in the euphoria and joy of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. So how do they go from that to now being gripped and their hearts so troubled? Well, you don't actually have to look very far. Just look over to one chapter but earlier in chapter 13. When Jesus is having this conversation, it's called the Last Supper, and this is where sometimes chapter divisions can actually make it a little bit difficult. We kind of think that, uh, like a television show, the end of the chapter, everything resolves, and you move on to the next chapter. That's not how it goes. This whole few chapters is a one fluid conversation. And in chapter 13, Jesus has just let them know in no uncertain terms that He has to leave them that he is going away and they can't follow him. Not only that, but he's just let them know that one of them will betray him, another of them will deny him, and the rest will abandon them. You imagine at this festive feast, They're enjoying this wonderful time together. They're enjoying what the Passover means, and Jesus is letting them know some really earth-shattering realities. Brothers, it's been a great three years, hasn't it? But I have to go, and where I'm going, none of you can follow me. And by the way, one of you in this room, one of your own brothers, is going to betray me, and Peter, strong Peter, is going to deny me, and you're all going to leave. Someone passed the hummus. I mean, can you imagine that conversation taking place and the disciples coming to a complete shock? What? What is going on here? What, what are you talking about? You're leaving. If you read chapter 13, you can hear, well, where, where are you going to go? We can follow you. You see, the disciples have just come to a point where if you remember the ministry of Jesus early on, when he went to each of these disciples, he says, follow me. Leave everything behind. Leave your, your vocation, your livelihood. In some cases, leave your family. Leave security. Follow after me. 
And each of these disciples did. They said, well, we're going to put all our eggs in the basket. If I can use the metaphor, it's Easter time. All our eggs in the basket of Jesus. We're full in with him. And all of a sudden, he pulls a fast one. I'm leaving, and you can't follow me. And this is all going to unravel real quick. Can you imagine what's going through their hearts right now? Can you relate to that? If, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, can you relate to the reality that, hey, I've started to follow you, Christ, and you've called me to follow you, to be one of your disciples, but now you're asking me to do, to do what? You know, maybe if you got, became a Christian sometime in the early 70s, you, got, you heard the God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life, four spiritual laws, and that's what you signed up for, and all of a sudden you're realizing, wait a minute, you want me to crucify myself, deny myself, pick up a cross, follow you? That's not exactly what I had intended. You want me to submit to who? You want me to sacrifice what? In other words, the radicalness of Jesus' demands become more and more apparent the longer you follow him. If you know what that's like to be faced with the reality that Jesus is way more radical than you anticipated, and what he's expecting is more radical than you were anticipating, you, you have a slight understanding of what's happening with these disciples right here in John 13 as he rolls into John 14. See, the, the victory lap that they thought they were on at the beginning of the triumphal entry has just turned into a crash course in anxiety. The certain and clear future that they saw for themselves just a few moments earlier had become all blurred. And they were now living in a fog of a million fears and concerns and none of it was known to them. Now, see, here's the, the, the challenge. Sitting here, 21 centuries later, we know the story, right? We know everything, and so it's hard for us to get back there. But keep in mind, when they saw Jesus as the Messiah, they were understanding that the Messiah was going to overthrow Rome, deliver Israel, and bring all the blessings back to God's people, and these 12 were going to be sitting right next to the king. That's what they signed up for. Yeah, they signed up to be kind of wandering preachers and go throughout the deserts and get a little persecution, but what they were waiting for was the payoff. And that is not what they're hearing right now. They're hearing the exact opposite. And so anxiety grips their heart like never before, and Jesus understands that his followers are facing an anxiety in their lives because his demands are radical. And so he addresses that. So if you don't hear anything else this morning, I wanted to put the big idea of this passage right in front of you. Here it is on the screens behind me. This is the big idea of John chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. And really, you could say through the entire chapter, trust in Christ is the antidote to an anxious and troubled heart. We're going to unpack that. Jesus encourages disciples to trust in him even as he leaves them, notice this, through the events of the Passion Week, the actions of Jesus, which are the cause of their anxiety, that's really important. Jesus himself is the one causing their anxiety, will also be the event that brings them greater joy by securing their eternal destiny and revealing the character of God in the cross. So the anxiety that they're feeling is caused by Jesus, but that very action is going to secure for them an eternal destiny, an eternal place in heaven, and reveal the Father to them in a way they had never known before. 
Now, this chapter, this conversation has three moving parts to it, so let's take a look at that. This is how this conversation breaks down. There's this first, Jesus has, recognizes the disciples' anxiety, and then he gives them a command in verse 1. So Jesus' recognition of the disciples' anxiety because of everything he said to them in chapter 13 and then followed up by his command in verse 1. Jesus unpacks that command in verses 2 through 4, which leads to Thomas's question in verse 5. Jesus responds to Thomas's question, which leads to Philip's request in verse 8. So that's the three movements of this conversation. Jesus sees their anxiety. He brings to them a command. Thomas has a question, and then Philip has a request. Let's look at them one by one. Let me read briefly again, because we can so quickly go over these things. Let me read verse 1. Jesus says to them, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. He just kind of threw all their conceptions of what it would be, this, this, this passion week, what it would be, the triumphal entry, what they thought was going to have happen, have completely been changed, upended, and Jesus knows that a million unnamed fears are gripping their hearts. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Notice the way Jesus is, is helping them combat these fears, this anxiety. It isn't to convince them that the fears are silly. He, he doesn't say, oh, you guys are just so immature. This is not where he puts down their immature faith. He recognizes, says, let not your hearts be troubled. He knows they're troubled for good reason. You know, sometimes I think we tend to try to, to deal with anxiety and troubled hearts by, by belittling our troubles, Right? We think it's a good Christian response to say, oh, it's okay, it's not a big deal, I can get through it. That's not what you see in the New Testament. That's not what you see Jesus doing here. Jesus isn't saying, no, your fears are silly, you just ignore them. Jesus says, really, the way you overcome anxiety, it's not, not even to overcome it, is that you go through them with some greater truth. You've ever had the, the horrible experience of having a panic attack? You know someone who's never experienced it when they say, oh, well, just can't, can you just avoid it, right? Just can't you just get around that? No, you can't. But Jesus is saying, but you can go through it with a greater truth. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Why? Believe in God. Believe also in me. See, Christianity is never a call to ignore the hard realities of life. Never. It is never a call to ignore the hard realities of life. It is a call to believers to believe in the greater realities of the gospel. It is not to deny the difficulty of this world, but it's to understand the, the, the superiority of the gospel in the midst of this world. He says, your hearts are troubled. Believe in me. Believe in God. Believe in me. Now, here's the thing we need to be careful with. This can sound, on the lips of Jesus, it makes complete sense, but sometimes for us, this can sound like moralism, right? Uh, especially if we put the emphasis on belief and not on the object of that belief, which is the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Have you ever heard someone say, well, just, just have faith? You ever sharing in a, in a Bible study and you hear someone say what well, the difficulties they're going through, the, the struggles of their life, and someone quickly comes back and says, well, just have faith, brother. I go, oh, just, there's no just about what I'm going through. You ever had that? Or someone tells you, well, just believe. I, 
on the one hand, it makes total sense. It is actually the right comment, right? That's what Jesus is saying. But when we say things like just, we don't understand how hard this is. And so this can seem like moralism, but that's not what's going on. But it can be when we emphasize belief, where Jesus is not emphasizing the belief necessarily as much as he's emphasizing the object of the belief, which is himself. Then he goes on, because we know it's in verses 2 through 4, he gives reason that his command to them to believe in him can ease their fears. He gives them reasons in verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. So Jesus' going away here is through the cross. In John's theology, all through the gospel, when Jesus says he's going away, he's going away through the cross, the disciples don't know that. This is that little information that we get to understand as the people who read this gospel. The disciples don't know that. That when Jesus says he's going away, what he means is how I'm going away is I'm going away through the cross. The means by which Jesus prepares a place for his people is through going to the cross. But notice, notice, it isn't that Jesus is going to prepare a place for them necessarily. Notice verses two, verse 2a. He says, my father's house has many rooms. He's not thinking, oh my gosh, the guests are coming over and I didn't clean up. I better go and clean it up. That's not what he's saying. My father's house has rooms. They're waiting for you. Me going away through the cross is the thing by which prepares the way so you can get there. If I don't go away, guess what? You don't get there. So the very thing that's causing them anxiety is the very thing for their own benefit. They just don't know that yet, right? And notice Jesus in verses uh, 2, 3, and 4. How much it's, it's all Jesus. I go to prepare a place. I will come for you. I will take you. Jesus is saying, well, look, when the fears are real, make me the focus. You guys are troubled right now, and I get it. You ought to be troubled. If you're not anxious, if your heart's not troubled, you don't know what's going on. Right? Some, sometimes I wonder, because I tend not to worry too much about life, I kind of wonder if I'm kind of like a cow on the way to the slaughter, right? You know, they're in a lot of danger. They just have no idea. They're just chewing their cud, and they just walk into the stall, and it's over. Sometimes the anxious people are kind of more paying attention than I am. Jesus gets that. He says, you're anxious, your hearts are troubled, but look at me. Believe in me because the, what I'm doing now is going to prepare the place for you. The thing that causes you anxiety is the thing that's going to be good for you, and you just don't know that yet. Now, years ago, I had this wonderful epiphany of this reality. I used to take groups of uh, high school students and college students in the Collegiate Peaks in Colorado. And we were about to summit Mount Yale. Mount Yale's not that big, 14,200 feet up, so, so almost three miles up, but it's big enough, you know. And I remember 200 feet from the summit, we had made a pack. We all summit or none of us summit. And a young lady, I mean, and if you've ever been above treeline, you get, you're nauseous, you got altitude sickness, you have a migraine, you feel like throwing up, you're tired, you don't have much oxygen. You're thinking, why am I doing this? But you love it. And I remember a young woman, as we came over this 
the, the, the mountain narrows, obviously, to the summit, and you're, high, you're looking down on other mountains and clouds, the wind's blowing, there's snow, it's cold, all these dynamics, and we had to climb over this rocky crag to get on a path that was probably about 10 feet wide, which sounds like a lot, but when you're up 14,000 feet, that can be kind of, and there's no railings, right? This is not like Disneyland, this is real deal. We had to climb over, and Sarah was petrified, and obviously terrified, weeping. She was immobilized by her fear, and in that moment, there was just an epiphany. I said, Sarah, I grabbed her hand, and as we're climbing, scrambling over these rocks, I just said, look at me. Just look at me. If you've been in these, you, you guys have done the same thing. Look at me. Don't look at the cliff. Don't look at the mountains. Don't feel the wind. Look at me, and I'm going to bring you across. Circumstance didn't change. The only thing I did for Sarah was gave her a point of focus that, that gave her confidence to realize that she'd be okay, right? She had no idea that I was just as precarious. I, I could have fallen just like she could have. It would have been over. But she didn't know that. All she needed to know was, I'm going to get you there. Just look at me. When fears grip us, Christ is saying, let me be the focus. Look at me when your troubled hearts grip you, which just leads to Thomas's amazing question. I love Thomas. Thomas said to the Lord, now when you read this verse, you need to read it with a sense of panic, okay? You need to read it the way Thomas would have said it. Verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Now, why is Thomas so panicked about this way? Why is Thomas panicked? You see, because in, in, in ancient culture, in antiquity, knowing the way someplace could mean the difference between life and death, right? This is, this is hard for us in the age of uh, Google Maps and GPS to appreciate, but knowing the exact way to get from point A to point B and avoiding where the, the dangerous elements might be or the bandits or the wild animals, knowing how to get there safely meant you would live or die, Knowing your way was critical. You know, they, they didn't have like, you know, hey, Siri, get me directions to Beersheba through Jericho Road, make sure there's no bandits during rush hour. They didn't have that. They don't know how to get there, and Jesus is leaving. And Thomas says, Lord, we don't know the way. What he's saying is, we're not going to make it. If you leave us, it's over. We don't, we're not going to make it through, is what he's saying. He's not just saying, well, we don't know the way, Lord. What do you mean? He gets it. Isn't that the very backdrop of Luke chapter 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan? So when Jesus is sharing that story, there once was a man heading from Jericho to Jerusalem. They all went, oh, yeah. It's like, yeah, don't get on the 405 on Friday afternoon. I know that road. They understood the importance of knowing your way around. And when Jesus says, I'm leaving, Thomas says, how are we going to get there? We don't know the way. And Jesus comes back with that amazing verse in verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So he's, he's building on what he told them in verse 1. When your anxieties and your fears grip you, do not be troubled. Believe in God. Believe in me. I'm that way. Thomas, I am that way that will lead you to flourishing and life. I am that way that will give you to wisdom and strength. I am that way that will lead you to safety and prosperity. I'm that way. I'm that path. By the way, this metaphor of the way is all throughout the Old Testament, isn't it? Psalm 1, the very first chapter of the, wisdom, of the psalmist, of the songbook of Israel, 
There are two ways, the way of the wise, the way of the fool. All the book of Proverbs talks about knowing the way. Jesus says, I'm that way. So we need to constantly ask ourselves, what, what, what way are we, what are we following, right? It, we are all following someone or something to get us to safety. I mean, literally, if you have Twitter, you're following people, right? And you may think it's entertainment, but we're following celebrities and, 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 and artists and politicians and thinkers because we're learning from them. What is the thing or person that you are following to ensure that your life will flourish? Is it your, your friends, your peers? That's only as good as uh, who they're following, right? So that only pushes the question one step back. Well, who are your peers following? Is it our culture? Well, you know where that goes, right? Is it media? Who is the thing or who is the person or what is the thing that you are charting your course by whether you know it or not? And that's the, thing that need, that's the first question maybe. Do you know who's guiding and leading you? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And look at verse 7. He builds on this. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. So it kind of sounds like a bit of a rebuke because of the past tense. If you have a Bible, some of, most of your Bibles will have a little number. With, if you look down at the margins of your page, I like the way they put it here. If you know me, you will know my Father also, is what it says. The reason that's there is, uh, in translating the New Testament, folks, we have tons of manuscripts, and scholars are constantly saying, well, which family or set is better? And, and this one seems to be more predominant, but this one has better witness to it. We're going to put them both in the Bibles, right? This is not a, a reason to disbelieve the Bible. This is a reason to say this is real stuff. And we've got great manuscripts that render it this way, but, but maybe fewer manuscripts, but closer to the source, render it this way. We'll put them both in there. And I happen to like the, the, the fewer manuscripts that's on the bottom. Jesus says, if you know me, you will also know my Father. Think about that mind-blowing concept. Right? Paul wrote to the Colossians in Colossians 1.15, if you're a note taker, Jesus is the, the image of the invisible God. Colossians 2.9, in him, Christ, dwells, dwells fullness of deity. The author of the Hebrews in Hebrews 1.3 said of Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Here's your mind. <laughs> Saying, Thomas, I'm that way. I am that way. If you've seen me, you're going to see the Father because I'm the image of Him. I'm the exact radiance of His glory and His nature. You can imagine how blown away these disciples are at this point. And when He says right here in verse 7, from now on, you do know Him and have seen Him, what He's getting at, saying from now on, you, keep in mind, this is a, the day before the tr where He starts going to the cross. From now on, you're really going to know the Father. Because what you're going to see happen is I'm going to go to the cross. And you are going to see the full, all the attributes of God's character revealed on the cross. Do you think about that? The cross was where we see all the attributes of God displayed. His, his wrath towards sin, his love for sinners, his justice, his holiness, his mercy, his compassion. They all come together at the cross. And Jesus says, you're going to know the Father now because through my obedience, his full character is going to be revealed as I'm on the cross and you see his judgment and mercy displayed simultaneously. They had no categories for this. We get it. 
they had no categories. And Jesus said, you've got to trust me. Just as he calls us to trust him when there are things we do not understand at all, he's saying, who are you going to follow? Trust me. And then Philip, Philip gets, so so he answers Jesus' question and it gets to Philip and Philip says, well, verse 8, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. So, so Philip's question, just like Thomas, is another fundamental cry of the human heart. Lord, is, is he there? Is the Father really real? Is, if he's really out there, show him to us, and then we'll be fine. If you're leaving us, is the Father there? It, what, what Philip's question really is getting at is, that is, is there a personal God that's really behind all this that we're going to be able to bank on like we banked on you? If you're leaving us, is the Father there? If you could just show him to us, we'll believe it'll be okay. Philip's request to see the Father was to say, give me some assurance that there is something that makes sense and meaning to all of what's going on here. Or, is Macbeth right that life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury but signifying nothing? Or is there a personal God behind all the twists and turns of life that has control and will give meaning and purpose to these things that we're involved in? Philip's request was to say, is there something out there that we can bank on? If you can show them to us, then it'll be enough. That's what Philip is asking. Jesus says to him, I I am, I'm him. Have you seen me so long but not recognize that I and he are one? Disciples, you are anxious and troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me, because I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I reveal to you the full character of your heavenly Father. The fact that Philip even addresses the Godhead as Father shows that he's believing Jesus. Prior to Jesus' teaching on the fatherhood of God, there was no concept in Judaism as, as Almighty Yahweh being Dad. So they believe in Jesus, and Jesus says, look, put that faith in me, because I'm that way, and I reveal to you through my obedience the full character of God. Now, we need to begin to land this. The point of, let's tie this back into the anxiety. Jesus lays out this hope that is both, I'm just going to give you big words, eschatological and Christological. Eschatology is the, all that the Bible teaches of last things. It's, it's the ultimate things that matter. And Christology, it's all focused on the person of Christ. So when Jesus is dealing with the anxiety and troubled hearts of his followers, he says right here, the way I'm going to put your hope is it's got to be in ultimate things and it's got to be in me. And what is Passion Week if not about those two things? And Jesus says, put these things here. That's your hope. It's not to avoid them. It's not to try and go around them. You can only go through the fears and hardships of this world if you have something better to get you through them. And that is both his hope in in what God's plan of redemption is and in Jesus himself. So the natural question we have to ask of the text is, am I hoping in the right things? Is my hope in Christ's promises and the character of God? When I'm dealing with difficulties and anxieties, how do I answer the question, or how do I finish the sentence, let not your heart be troubled? How do I do that? I think there's a couple ways we can talk about them. We're going to have to hit these real quick. Number one, um, maybe it's a kind of escapism. So I believe that 
that, that Jesus will make all things all right in this world, which means I can just kind of unplug, check out of this world. I don't have to engage this world around me. It's all going to, you know, it's, it's, it's all going to be judged anyway. It's all going to pass. I don't need to be a part of this world. I can check out. Maybe it's a kind of um, Christian stoicism. Well, I, I do know Jesus is going to make all things all right, so I just got to kind of just suck it up and plow through until he comes back, right? Just endure. Or maybe I trust in a kind of legalism. Yes, Jesus will make all things all right, and so I just have to demand that everyone obey like I obey and lose myself in religious ritual and, and make my life about that. Or, I escape, or there's a kind of hedonism. Yes, Jesus will make everything all right, and so I can live my life however I want with no standards, no accountability, and distract my life with pleasures and not think about this world around me. The problem with each one of these is it, it suffers from what's called reductionism. In other words, it says the answer to the struggles and anxieties of my life can be answered if I just do one of these things, but none of those things are the gospel. Let not your hearts be troubled because I have this biblically grounded, gospel-centered faith that the Son of God left the halls of eternity, came and conquered sin, death, and the powers of darkness, and is inviting me to participate in that victory. That is what he's called me to do, and he's guaranteed my place with him, and through his obedience revealed the full character of God that gives me confidence of the work he's calling me to participate in. That's how I get through my anxieties and troubles. So we say, life does matter. This world does matter, and I don't just plow through the world. I move through it as an agent of God's grace, Him trying to redeem this world. And obedience, it's not a ritual, it's a joy that I long to do. And I don't want to distract myself from this world. I want to be fully engaged in what's happening in this world because the Lord loves this world. And I can do all this because I believe that Jesus will make all things all right. But then now I have a hope that's not based on the things of this world. Now, Passion Week, which is the week we're celebrating and, and remembering this week, did not turn out at all the way these disciples had anticipated. But life rarely turns out the way we anticipate either, does it? What seemed to be the end of the line for the disciples at that moment was only the starting line from God's perspective. And from beginning to end, the gospel and the Christian life are counterintuitive to the ways we live in this world. And that's why the church, big capital C church, has in her calendar annual, monthly, weekly reminders of the radically different ways Christians are called to live. And if it's not your habit to be part of this, this annual reminder to be here at a Good Friday service, I encourage you to be here because we need these annual monthly, weekly reminders. Right? Every month, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Every month, we celebrate and remind ourselves we don't live for this world. Every week, we gather to say, hey, just like Scott said, we are strangers in this world and we have a mission and we're all part of that. Let's do that for the glory of God and the good of His people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for John chapter 14. Thank you that your word is immeasurably rich. As last year, we got to see from a 10,000-foot view the events of Passion Week, and today we just zeroed in on one conversation. And though we remember that your plan was to redeem humanity 
Part of that plan also includes us dealing with anxiety and a troubled heart. Father, thank you that we don't have to have one or the other, but we can have them both. For you are immeasurably rich and expansive and can deal with all the troubles of humanity and our own troubled hearts. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. This Palm Sunday message titled, Let Not Your Hearts Be Troubled, was given by Pastor Rick Rohde at Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, please visit us at www.cccl.org. Lh.org.